Right now we're in the Gospel of Mark, and we're in chapter 14. If you'd like to navigate there on your device or open your Bible, Mark chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 32 through 42. Mark 14, 32 through 42. The topic, in Gethsemane, Jesus addresses Peter as Simon, calls him out for falling asleep. The title of our message, Simon Says Sleep. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, as always, we want to learn about what happened in the garden. We want to see the effect that it had on you and on the disciples. We want to understand everything in its proper context. But, Lord, we also want your spirit to take this word that was written so many centuries ago and bring it to our own hearts as an encouragement in our own lives, in our own situations. We don't want to do any uh, violating of the word. We don't want to make things up, Lord, that aren't there. But we know that by your spirit you can minister truth to us in the deepest part of our hearts where the soul and the spirit are divided by your Holy Spirit applying the word. Enrich us and fill us, Lord, with the knowledge of Jesus Christ this morning. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, Amen. One morning, 85-year-old Winnie Withers of Indiana got up to pour herself coffee and found to her surprise that she had an eight-foot hole in her kitchen wall. Somehow she had slept through a vehicle smashing through her house and then fleeing the scene. Her bed was only about 20 feet away from the crash. Sadly, the pie she had set on the windowsill to cool overnight was never recovered. Do you think you could have slept through the sinking of the Titanic? Not the movie, which you could have, but the actual sinking of the Titanic. Six-year-old Robert Douglas Spedden did. His story was immortalized in 1994 in a book titled Polar the Titanic Bear. Written by his mother soon after they survived, it was discovered and published by a relative decades later. It's the account of that night as seen through the eyes of sleeping Robert's stuffed bear, Polar. Now, what about you? Is there something you once slept through, much to your own surprise or dismay, like one of our exciting sermons here on Sunday morning? At this point in my life, I think I could sleep through just about anything. Uh, man, when I, when, I'm, when I hit the couch, I'm gone. One of the worst, if not the worst, sleep-throughs of all time, it has to be this account of Peter, James, and John nodding off while Jesus was praying at Gethsemane. Not once, but three times, it prompted Jesus to ask, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? The other eight disciples didn't fare much better. We're not told that they slept, but it's clear from the various accounts that they were completely passive in this situation. They might as well have been sleeping. We're going to look first at the eight and then at the three. I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, are you passive in obeying Jesus? And number two, are you powerless to obey Jesus? Let's take a look at being passive in verse 32. Now, obviously, we tend to concentrate on Peter, James, and John overlooking the other eight disciples. They were there too, and we can glean a few things from them. Let's look at verse 32. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. 
Jesus had shared one final Passover meal with his disciples. It was also, for all practical purposes, the last Passover because the Lord was about to be sacrificed on the cross as the final Passover lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now the group, minus Judas the traitor, was on its way to spend the night outdoors on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. Specifically, they were going to Gethsemane, a favorite well-known spot for Jesus to hang out. After being very stealthy about planning the Passover meal, Jesus returned to his normal habits. He hadn't wanted Judas to betray him at the meal. Now the time had come for the Lord to endure his agony leading up to and on the cross. He went to exactly the spot he knew Judas would lead his captors. Gethsemane is a compound word. It means olive press. It was a working olive grove with a press to crush the olives into olive oil. Multitudes of Bible studies have been delivered regarding the comparison between the crushing of the olives and the spiritual crushing of Jesus. I can't add anything to them. I just make passing note of it as an incredibly symbolic stage for this drama to unfold upon. Jesus is going to take Peter, James, and John further with him into Gethsemane. First, he instructed eight of them, saying, sit here while I pray. Let's call them the waitful eight. I understand why very little is written about or said about the waitful eight, but that doesn't mean they are insignificant in this account. I'm going to suggest that they could have gotten more involved with the action, but instead, they remained overly passive in their obedience to Jesus Christ. Now let's first set the scene. The Jews followed and they follow still a lunar calendar. That's important because that means Passover always falls on the night of a full moon. It's always a full moon when Passover falls. Why is that important? Full moon over the Mount of Olives means what? Lots of light to see. It means the eight, even though left further behind, would have been able to see Peter, James, and John, and they would have been able to see Jesus. Are you familiar with the term blocking when it's used in the theater? Lines are what an actor says on stage. Blocking is where and how the actor moves on stage. Sometimes even on television, if you're watching a show, you'll see little marks on the stage, like maybe The Tonight Show, uh, where Jimmy Fallon will come out and he'll hit his mark. He's blocked on that part of the stage and everything is, uh, revolves around that. Blocking is largely determined by the director. I see Jesus blocking this scene. It's an unfolding drama on the stage of Gethsemane. And he puts his actors, all 11 of them, exactly where he wanted them and exactly where he needed them. Now the eight who were blocked further out must have been there by God's design. The events of this night were just too important for Jesus to overlook any detail. It wasn't a situation where he's thinking, well, you guys, I don't care what you guys do. Do whatever you want because all the action is going to be here in the center. Everything was by God's predetermined design. Now, we're not told what that design was, so we need to be careful and not make up anything or go too far afield. However, if we're careful, I think we can say a few instructive things as we meditate on these weightful disciples. Now, I sometimes wonder about one of them in particular. Andrew had been a disciple of John the Baptist. Then he obediently left to follow Jesus. He was used by God to introduce his brother, Peter, to Jesus. 
Scholars always list him as fourth in importance after Peter, James, and John. And you know that James and John were brothers. It's possible that the other James in the group of disciples was the brother of Matthew. We think it's possible because in the list of the disciples, both of them have a man named Alphaeus as their father. Why aren't we sure? Because Alphaeus was a common name and it could be that they were the sons of two different men named Alphaeus. But a lot of scholars feel like they were brothers as well. And so three sets of brothers among the original 12 disciples of the Lord. Peter and the brothers James and John got to attend some amazing events. They were in the room for the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. They accompanied Jesus up the Mount of Transfiguration when he met with Moses and Elijah. And now they were closest to his agony in Gethsemane. Why draw the line at three? Why one set of brothers, James and John, and not Peter and Andrew? I know if I was Andrew, I would have thought that. And probably you would have thought that too because we're human. Now, it's a bedrock principle that God is not a respecter of persons. He loves and forgives and showers his grace upon all of his followers with equal passion. God does not love me more than he loves you, or rather, he doesn't love you more than he loves me. God is love, and he showers his love and his grace upon all of us without respect to our person. We know, therefore, that it wasn't because of some flaw or some failing in Andrew or the others that Jesus somehow chose Peter, James, and John. It's not like some of you at work where Peter scored higher on the test. He got a better score on the entry exam. Or he had a greater potential for leadership. Or his you know, Stanford personality index came out on top. God is not a respecter of those kinds of things. The three in the inner circle didn't earn that spot. In fact, I think you could make a pretty good case that Peter was often a liability. It wasn't that he was more or the most spiritual in the bunch. It's even been suggested sarcastically that Jesus had to keep him close so that he didn't make a total mess of everything all the time. And so why those three guys? We don't know. It certainly wasn't because they were the cream of the crop. That's just the way it was. And that encourages me because that means my assignment for the Lord is no indicator of God's pleasure or displeasure with me. It is simply the place where he has us, where he can most effectively conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. If there's a Christian more successful than you in some area, it doesn't mean that God loves that person more or that they are more spiritual. It just means that God is working in their life in a certain way and he's working in your life in a different way. And I like that. It's, it's an amazing thing. Now, I would say at least we are familiar with Andrew. Most of us are hard-pressed to name all eight of those who were told, sit here while I pray. Let's discuss that assignment since we're there. Sit here while I pray. Does that command mean they were prohibited from doing anything else? So Jesus said, I want you guys to sit here while, and, and, you know, and pray. Does that mean they couldn't do anything else? I'm going to say no. For example, they could see in the light of that full moon, Peter, James, and John nodding off to sleep. They probably had heard Jesus' instructions to them and Jesus' comments every time he came to them and found them sleeping. Do you think it might have been good if, say, Andrew, upon realizing his brother and the others were sleeping, went over to them to awaken them while Jesus was off praying? 
mean, think about it. Just be practical for a minute. You're in the garden. You're part of the eight. You see these three knuckleheads dozing off. Have you ever woke anybody up in a situation because you didn't want them to be embarrassed? I have to admit this. The other day, I fell asleep in the movie theater. It's just the perfect environment to sleep, right? It's dark. It's cold. There's droning going on, you know, and... You're just sitting there, especially if you go to Tulare Luxury Theater because you're in that reclining chair and you're sitting there and I'm dozing off. And normally Pam would let me sleep except that I started to snore and drool and lean my head on the person next to me. It's embarrassing. And so she woke me up and I'm glad for it. And I think these guys would have been glad for it too. Or at least start throwing some rocks. Say, hey, what should, should we do something? Yeah, watch this. I'm going to tag that guy. And, oh, what happened, you know? Because you know these three guys don't want to be asleep, but they are. And so they could have done that. Again, we can't say any of this for sure. But it is true of us that we can obey Jesus so passively that we fail to serve when an opportunity is right in front of us. A lot of times we're so nervous serving the Lord is, oh, I know this is what I'm supposed to do as the pastor, as an usher in the Sunday school, whatever it might be. And then there's something else that can be done, but I, I'm just going to hang out in my little area and do my thing. Or when I go to work tomorrow or school or whatever it is, I, I've, I passively obey Jesus by having my devotions and listening to the radio on, on the way in. But then when an opportunity comes to share about Christ, I, I, boy, I don't know if that's an open door or not. I just, I'm just too passive. Jesus had given his disciples plenty of experience in this area. On his way to heal Jairus' daughter, you recall that he was stealthily touched by a woman who had a 12-year flow of blood. Even though his mission was urgent, as he was trying to get to Jairus' daughter and, and heal her before she died, he paused for as long as it took to minister to that woman. And so the disciples were filled with uh, understanding that ministry just happens around you when the opportunity arises, and yet the eight did nothing to help the three or to, uh, to, to do anything other than what they were passively told. Told to sit and pray. They could have done more, but they apparently did not. Do you think later on Peter got on Andrew a little bit and said, Hey, Andy, I need to talk to you. What's the matter, bro? Why didn't you wake me up? You know how you do that when it's your fault, you did something, and then you try and blame somebody else? Be like me at the theater. Say, well, why didn't you wake me up? Hey, you're the one sleeping, knucklehead. Why did you fall asleep is the better question. And so this is all very human. And I think that we can see that a set of brothers... Uh, probably would have had that conversation. Now, we all know what a comfort zone refers to. I'm saying we can have a spiritual passive zone that keeps us from serving. We all have our individual assignments. We all have our gifts. Beyond them, we need to develop a greater spiritual situational awareness to overcome this naturally passive obedience to Jesus and do more than the mere minimum. Look around with spiritual sight and insight and serve the Lord. Now, in verses 33 through 42, we're going to ask the question, are you, are you powerless to obey Jesus? Did your parents ever tell you about the Sandman? Not the nefarious uh, arch enemy of Spider-Man, but the folklore character who comes to you at night and uh, pours sand in your face and gives you good dreams. 
Probably not too much of that happened in Kings County because that guy would have been shot as an intruder. No Sandman here. Peter, James, and John wanted to stay awake, but their eyelids grew heavier and heavier as the early morning hours progressed, and they missed out on Jesus' incredible talk with his Father in heaven. Verse 33, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. I have to admit, I struggle to expound upon the agony of Jesus. He was fully God and fully man. He was about to be nailed to the cross where the Bible says he would be made sin for us. It's all beyond my comprehension. It's at least beyond my ability to articulate. And so, um, if you want, you can read almost any commentary, and people like to spend a lot of time here getting really into the agony and, and how Jesus must have felt. I'm just admitting to you, I don't know how Jesus felt. I don't know what it's like to be the God-man having, being made sin. I know it's awful, and I just want to leave it at that. I cannot fathom Jesus' trouble and distress. It's too deep, it's too intense for human words. Verse 34, then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. I find it interesting that even though what he must suffer, he must suffer alone, Jesus wanted company. There is what is called the ministry of presence, and we can all practice it. It's when a person is suffering through something, some tragedy or some grief, and your presence alone is significant to help them. Just being there. Some of us are better at this than others in terms of being there and saying something. And some of us are horrible failures at being there and saying something. Can you imagine the disciples trying to give Jesus advice or comfort, saying things like, it's all going to work out, or God is in control, or my favorite, God, Jesus, God won't give you more than you can handle. Can you imagine that? that these are the things that people say now. And I think if you're going to say something like that, don't say anything. And sometimes you don't need to say anything. Sometimes you just have to go through grief. I don't know how else to say it. That's kind of a clunky way of saying it. I want to stop your grief. I want to help you in your grief. I want to cut it off at the pass. I want you to feel better. But sometimes you just have to experience it because it's real. And you have to work through it and get over it with the Lord's help. And no words can help a person, but presence can. Because a person's presence announces to them, if I could help you, I would. If I could take your grief upon myself or part of it, I would. If there was anything I could say that would make this any better, I would say it. But all I'm going to do is hang out here with you for as long as you want. And then I'm going to leave when you want me to leave too. That's another part of the ministry of presence. I've had to learn this as a law enforcement and fire chaplain. I always come into a situation as a stranger. I'm the chaplain, okay. I have some things that I can say and things that I can do. But I have to sense when I've overstepped my welcome because I don't know these individuals. This is their family. Maybe they don't want to cry in front of a total stranger. Maybe they don't want to bear their heart in front of a total stranger. And so it's a very delicate kind of situation, almost impossible to get right every time. But know that there is a ministry of presence and it's enough 
and it gets to a point when it's too much and, and learn to practice that. Nevertheless, Jesus wanted them to be present at a distance because their presence would be enough to strengthen him. He said, guys, you hang out here. You guys hang out here. I'm going over here. This is all I need right now. I don't need anything else besides this, but I do desire this. And so Jesus sets up the scene. Verse 35, he went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but you will. Now, God is omnipotent, but there are things even he cannot do. So when Jesus says all things are possible, it's within the context of what is possible. For example, God cannot lie. Uh, God cannot sin. God cannot learn anything new. Really? Well, I didn't know that. God can factor pi out to the last digit, I guess is what I would say. God cannot ever be wrong. And so there are things it's impossible for God to do. The hour Jesus spoke of was probably the entire suffering, the time of suffering that was ahead of him. Anyone facing what he was facing would want to escape it, even if you knew you couldn't. He called it this cup. The cup is a familiar Old Testament symbol for God's judgment being poured upon sin. Jesus knew his suffering and death could not be avoided. So why did he pray that way? Well, I'm glad he did because it highlights that his death on the cross is the only way for mankind to be saved and for creation to be restored. If there were any other way to salvation and to the restoration of creation then Jesus need not die. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except this way, the way of the cross. There's no religion or philosophy that can conquer sin and death and Satan. No other name can save a lost human being besides the name of Jesus. No one can come to the Father except by Him. It takes great faith to say, nevertheless, not what I will, but you will. Modern day teachers have twisted this saying that you should have great faith by just telling God what you want him to do and believing that he's going to do it. But the real faith is submitting to the plan of God. It doesn't mean we can't pray however we'd like for healings and miracles, and I, I recommend that you do that. But in the end, you have to recognize your frailty and your humanity. And hey, I always want the healing, I always want the miracle, I always want more money. God says that can't always happen in a world marred by sin where I have to mold you into the image of Jesus Christ. So we trust the Lord. Verse 37, then he came and found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? The reference to one hour, again, probably doesn't mean 60 minutes, but to however long Jesus had been praying. In sympathy for the boys, Luke's gospel says they were groggy on account of exceeding sorrow. They were physically and psychologically spent from everything Jesus had said up to this point. Jesus said some really difficult things to them. They were literally and, 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 and spiritually walking with the Lord. And yet he had said, hey, one of you is going to betray me. Which one, Lord? One of you that eats with me. He didn't specify. And so they were all made to consider this. Then he said, all of you are going to stumble and be scattered. And then to Peter, in the hearing of the rest, he said, you're going to deny me. 
I mean, this is heavy. This is a heavy load. And it is Jesus telling them. This isn't the devil coming and whispering in their ear. Jesus says, guys, some heavy things are going to come down. Now, he also told them he would be with them always and that he would see them again in Galilee. But this was some real talk, some straight talk from Jesus. You're going to have times in your life, maybe long seasons, when it seems as though what Jesus is telling you is hard to bear, nearly impossible to endure. You'll be physically and psychologically spent, even with the Lord walking with you through it. I enjoy, like you do, the little poems, Footprints in the Sand, you know, where you say, Jesus, there's only, you know, we were walking together and now there's only one set of footprints. And the Lord says, well, that's when I carried you. All right. What I'm suggesting is there are also going to be times when you're going to see drag marks in the sand. (laughs) Jesus, what's that all about? That's when I drug you through the sand because life is hard. And it's difficult. It's fallen. And, And people that you know are going to get diseases and they're going to die. You might get a disease. You might die. Terrible things are going to happen in the world and in your world. But I've got you. You want to stop right there. You want the world to end. You don't think you can take it, but I'm going to drag you through that and we're going to get to the other side together. And it's going to be all right. You can still have joy, a joy unspeakable and full of glory, but there are going to be times when you depend upon the Holy Spirit to interpret deep groanings within you because you can't even give uh, verbal assent to your grief. That was a terrible sentence, but I lost my mind. All three were asleep, but Jesus addressed Peter. I I know what you were thinking. You were thinking, what is he talking about? Verbal assent? What an idiot. Okay, so all three were asleep, but Jesus addressed Peter. Hey, if you want to lead, and if you're going to be bragging about, hey, I'm the guy in the group that is not going to betray you, well, then you'd better be ready to produce. And so Jesus comes and says, well, let me just talk to you, Simon. And he changed his name earlier in his career to Peter, meaning rock, why did he occasionally call Peter Simon after he had changed his name to Peter? Well, it's probably because Simon sometimes acted like his old self instead of the rock God called him to be. Do you realize that we're all going to have new names in heaven? I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but there's a a new name that the Lord has for you. And and so uh, I'm not going to be Gene anymore. That's fine with me. But everything that I was in the flesh and, and, you know, even in my best moments as a Christian is going to pale in comparison to when I'm with the Lord in my glorified body and I have my new name. And uh, I have no idea what it is, but it's going to be cool. Uh, Peter had claimed he was able to resist any attack, but here he couldn't even fend off the Sandman. Not Spider-Man's Sandman, but the regular little Sandman with his shovel and stuff. And so he just was overly tired. Verse 38, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, the flesh is weak. Jesus knew Peter would fail, yet he encouraged him to victory, knowing that the resources are found in watching and praying. Jesus knows I will fail, he knows you will fail. Our resources are in watching and praying. If we will practice them, we'll be prepared when testing comes. We'll be ready for the traps that are set. And we will fail less. Now the spirit which was willing refers to their human spirit, what we might call our mind, will, and emotions. They definitely wanted to do what the Lord asked. 
The flesh refers to unredeemed humanity. We are born with a sin nature, and even after we're saved, the tendency to disobey God and to sin remains within us. If the flesh seems to win out, how would we say it's weak? Isn't it strong? Well, it's both weak and strong. The flesh is strong. To paraphrase Darth Vader, we could say of just about any human being, the flesh is strong with this one. And so when you look at another person, you can look at them and say, the flesh is strong with this one. I know you don't want to do it, but you're little kids. Two years old. (laughs) The flesh is strong with this one. Put that down. (laughs) Did you ever get it? Your, Your kids, please, just don't do that and everybody will be happy and we'll have ice cream. The flesh is strong in those little ones. What Jesus meant here is that if you try to accomplish something spiritual in the energy of the flesh, it will fail, you will fall. In that sense, it is weak. It is impossible to produce anything spiritual in the energy of the flesh. That's where it's weak. Verse 39, again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. Doesn't mean he recited a prayer. It means he spoke in the same manner in the same way, along the same lines. I only say that because we see Jesus addressing God as Abba, Father. Abba means Daddy or Papa. It's a term of endearment. It's an intimate term. We don't want to think of Jesus coming before the Lord and saying, Oh, thou heavenly Father, upon thy throne of grace. I mean, Jesus is pouring out his heart like your children do when they have owies. I need help. And it's important that we realize that because there's a fine line between reverence and and intimacy, is there not? A lot of times people will come to our fellowship or fellowships like this and think, well, you guys are irreverent. You're just too casual. You don't dress well enough and and you just don't take things as seriously. I think we take things as seriously as we can considering that, that we call God the Father Daddy. Now, how, what would be too far? Well, somebody sent me a video of a church. It's a big mega church that's kind of crazy. They did a baptism. They had a big pool on stage, and they set up a water slide. <laughs> if you wanted to be baptized, you had to climb the top of the slide. and It was a spiral slide, and then you got into the water, and everybody, yeah! Uh, that, we wouldn't do that. You, you understand that, right? Because we don't have a high enough ceiling to... <laughs> So, you know, Jesus isn't, he's not saying the exact same words over and over again to try and get God's attention. He's pouring out his heart to his father and that's what we are to do as well. Verse 40, when he returned, he found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. Round two, another loss for Peter, James, and John. Heavy eyes sounds like it was tough rousing them. I understand that all too well. Oftentimes, Pam can't wake me up at home when I'm on the chair and uh, she'll have to leave me there. I'm not blaming her for it. What are you supposed to do? And then at like 2 in the morning, I'll, my neck will finally hurt so bad that I you know, wake up. And then I try and get to bed without opening my eyes very much. Do you do that? Because there's something, I, there's sand in my eyes and I don't want it to move you know, and stuff. Because if I open my eyes too much, then I'm still tired, but I'm laying awake in bed. And so I have to stumble off in the dark. Sometimes I'll try one eye, then the other. But I have to, I have to maintain some kind of heavy eyes. They did not know what to answer him. Today we'd say they were busted. 
The Lord had already told them, the flesh is the problem, so there's no use offering up any excuse. Verse 41. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. The commentators have very different opinions regarding the tone of Jesus' voice throughout this encounter. For example, was he now chiding them, as some suggest? Or was this a tender comment as he came upon them enjoying their last peaceful sleep that they would have for quite some time? Well, Kenneth Wiest, who's a renowned Greek scholar, translates this phrase, keep on sleeping now and take your rest. I like that. I can hear Jesus saying that. And by the way, how do you receive the Lord speaking to you through the word? Do you always think that he's chiding you and disciplining you and yelling at you? Or do you see a tenderness in Jesus? Because how you receive his word is going to dictate how you give out his word. And I'm not saying that Jesus isn't the one who talked more about hell than anyone in the Bible. He did. But there's a way of presenting Christ that talks about the grace of his wrath and his love for lost humanity. It is enough, exclaimed Jesus. He meant something like, it's time. Whenever I had to wake up the kids, I would always say something like, hey, wake up, it's time to go to school. And that's what Jesus is doing. He says, hey guys, wake up now, it's time to go to the cross. The hour had come for him to be the lamb led to the slaughter as the substitute for all mankind, as the sacrifice for our sins. It wasn't a moment Jesus had been preparing for just 30 plus years. He'd been preparing from eternity past. All the way back, I mean, to us, eternity is linear without a beginning or an end, but the only way I can say it is as far back as you can go, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit knew that Jesus would go to the cross. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, his creation would be plummeted, he knew his creation would be plummeted into sin by the disobedience of the man and woman he would create with free will. Why not create mankind without free will? Seems like a no-brainer. Well, that's another thing that's impossible for God. Because the Bible says that he created the male and female in his image. You can't create in God's image without a real free will that is free to choose wrongly. But thank God that he is love and that with our wrong choice, he had a solution. And that is sending his son to die in our place. Verse 42, rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Physically, Jesus was much more exhausted than his disciples, yet he managed to stay up well into the next day in order to seek his father in prayer. While they were sleeping or sitting passively, Luke tells us Jesus was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. Think of his agony and his sweating and all of that, and yet... He didn't act exhausted. He continued to block the scene as its director. He got into position to meet the captors so he could surrender to them while simultaneously putting his men behind him in a safe place. When we see this scene next time we're together, you'll see how Jesus cared for and protected his own disciples and how he dealt with the crowd. His praying had prepared Jesus for what was to come. His great agony in Gethsemane gave him the spiritual strength to endure the hours of suffering that lie ahead. The difference between Jesus and the eleven wasn't that he was God and that they were men. The difference was that he had the Holy Spirit. 
While Jesus was on the earth, he voluntarily set aside the prerogatives of his deity and he acted as a spirit-filled man. And that's the difference in this scene. Jesus is filled with the spirit and the disciples are not. He had the power of the spirit and they did not. I don't want to completely excuse the eleven for their lack of power. While it's true that the Holy Spirit was not indwelling them, nor had he yet come upon them in the sense that he would at Pentecost, they could have known the empowering of the Holy Spirit. They were arguably better off than any of their Old Testament heroes, having been companions of Jesus for three and a half years. Heroes like Joshua and Caleb and David, each of those men experienced the Holy Spirit coming upon them to accomplish mighty deeds. So what I'm telling you is this, in the New Testament era, in the church age, we have a unique relationship to God the Holy Spirit. He indwells us permanently and he comes upon us to give us boldness to serve. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon individuals but then he would leave them. It didn't mean they weren't saved anymore, it just meant that they didn't have his empowering for service, but they could. David didn't do the things he did in the energy of his flesh. It wasn't that he knew Krav Maga and, and was a, you know, really good with the sword. It's that the Spirit came upon him. Joshua, Caleb, all of those guys. And so these guys could have known the power of the Holy Spirit. They could have watched. They could have prayed. Instead, they were powerless when they needed uh, the Holy Spirit the most. How much more do we have power? If you've been born again, as I said... The Holy Spirit indwells you. He doesn't come and go. And we have the promise of His coming upon us. In fact, Jesus specifically tells us to ask for the Holy Spirit's power to come upon us after we're saved. This is from Luke 11. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And in that passage, Jesus says, ask and keep asking, knock and keep knocking, seek and keep seeking. We are to continually be seeking and asking and knocking for the Holy Spirit to come upon us. In our quiet closing time now, talk to Jesus about any passive obedience that might be in your life. Break out of your passive zone and start to see ministry all around you. Ask for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon you for boldness to obey Him. You're not, it's not an admission that you're not saved or that you don't have the Holy Spirit. Of course you do. If you're saved, He indwells you. The question is, does He have you? Is He poured out upon your life? so that you can serve Him with boldness. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're here to receive the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus is your Passover Lamb. He took your place as your substitute, sacrificed on the cross so that you could live forever with Him in heaven. Don't let another day go by without receiving Christ. Let's pray.